Hi, everyone, and welcome to the American Ambulance EMS podcast. I'm Dr. Danielle Campaign, American Ambulance's medical director, and I'm here with our awesome co-host, Dr. Sajan Bakta, and special co-host, Dr. Crystal Ives. Today, we're going to be talking about ECMO. Who serves a million people in the valley? We do. The brave men and women of the double A are the best at what they do in EMS today. The finest place in the world to be is right here as a part of American's family. Help is on the way, got a unit and route. No matter the problem, when in doubt, we send them out. Sure as the sunrise, sure as I bust this rhyme, 10 minutes or less. Every call, every time, this is my career path, this is what I do. The double A's, red, white, and blue. Get your call on. Here comes American. Get your lights on. Here comes American. Get your gurney on. Here comes American. Get your gloves on. Here comes American. Get your save on. So, Sajin, why don't you introduce us to this topic? Tell us about ECMO, what it stands for, what we're going to expect in today's podcast. So, we're going to be talking about ECMO or ECLS and how it can intersect with pre hospital medicine. ECMO is an acronym that stands for Extracorporeal Membrane Oxygenation, and ECLS stands for Extracorporeal Life Support. Both of these terms apply to artificial life support that can replace or uh, assist your lung and heart function using a machine that oxygenates the patient's blood outside of the body and returns it using a pump, thus allowing the heart and the lungs to rest. Traditionally, this therapy has only been available in the hospital setting, and traditionally it's used in cases where you need to bypass the heart or the lungs for a period of time. For example, this year it's been used a lot in severe COVID patients to bypass their lungs and allow their blood to still get oxygen to the rest of their body. So today it's great to have a special guest with us, a guest host, um, Dr. Crystal Ives-Tallman. And so Crystal, why don't you tell us about yourself so the audience can know all about you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So I am an emergency medicine intensivist, which means I'm trained in both emergency medicine and critical care. And I work here at Community Regional Medical Center uh, in both the emergency department and uh, the ICU. Uh, I've been interested and involved in ECMO since uh, 2014. Been fortunate enough to learn about ECMO um, from uh, the inaugural Reanimate Conference down in San Diego from uh, Zach Schreiner and Joe Bellasio. Been fortunate enough to uh, go to Melbourne um, and learn about ECMO at the Alfred. And most recently, I completed a critical care fellowship at the University of Michigan. Um, And there, I was fortunate enough to be able to participate in ECPR as a fellow uh, during the AROCA study. Now I work in ICU and I'm part of the ECMO team here at Community Regional Medical Center and very excited to talk to you about ECPR. Fantastic. And where are you from? Where's original home for you? I am from Salem, Oregon, originally. Awesome. We're glad we get to keep you in Fresno, California. Let's talk about epidemiology, Um, you know, how often we see this. So out-of-hospital cardiac arrests happen 360,000 patients per year in the United States. Um, Here at American Ambulance in Fresno County, um, in 2020, we had 953 medical arrests, and 368 of those were witnessed by bystanders and had um, bystander CPR. And of those, 58 of those had VFib or VTAC um, was their initial rhythm. So from these out-of-hospital cardiac arrests, the overall survival rate is usually less than 10%. However, if someone had a shockable rhythm like VFib or VTAC, the survival rate goes up to about 30% overall. So yet half of these patients don't respond to standard ECLS treatment. So ECLS um, can help with these cases. 
So we have a bunch of questions for Crystal. We're kind of going to go through some round robin questions for her and see if she can introduce um, ECMO and ECLS to us and kind of teach us all about it. So let's start out with Crystal with what type of patients or illnesses is the best candidate for eCPR? Sure. And I just want to back up and sort of define some of these things to make sure we're clear what we're talking about. So eCLS is extracorporeal life support, and that really encompasses all types of ECMO. So um, both VV or venovenous ECMO and VA, venoarterial ECMO. So VV ECMO only supports the lungs. And we've been doing a lot of that, for example, in the ICU for COVID patients for severe ARDS. What we're talking about um, with eCPR is really VA ECMO, which is venoarterial ECMO, which supports both the heart and the lungs. Now, eCPR specifically is the application of VA ECMO uh, on a patient that is in cardiac arrest that has been refractory to our standard resuscitation. And so that's really what we're talking about when we say eCPR. So when we're talking about what kind of patients are the best candidates for eCPR, Really, uh, for all kinds of ECMO in general, patients should be relatively young and healthy. Um, and the reason for that is this is a, um, a very invasive and intense therapy. And the patient really, it's a bridge to allow the patient's body to heal. And so we really need to have the patient be able to withstand such an intense therapy and heal from it. In addition, it can sometimes be a bridge to long-term therapies like LVADs or transplants uh, if the patient doesn't heal. And so patients should generally be candidates for those therapies. Can you define for everybody what an LVAD is, just in case not everyone listening? Oh, I'm sorry. It's a left ventricular assist device, uh, sort of an internal pump that can support the heart, either um, for a short period of time while waiting for a heart transplant or for a longer period of time. With regards to age, each program has different cutoffs, but generally we're doing it for adult patients age 18 to 65 or 75, depending on the program. Additionally, the patient should be relatively healthy beforehand, so they shouldn't have like end-stage renal disease on you know hemodialysis. They shouldn't have advanced liver disease, advanced heart failure, metastatic malignancy, or anything that would preclude them again from being a candidate for an LVAD or a transplant. We also want that cardiac arrest to be witnessed, right, and have bystander CPR that should be started to give them the most um, effective outcomes. Correct. So yeah, you really need to have we called like zero no flow time. So that's time where the heart is stopped and there is no circulation of any sort. These arrests really should be witnessed and bystander CPR should be started immediately. And that really is maybe the most key principle or, you know, biggest point to take home from this talk is that bystander CPR is absolutely critical to the success of an eCPR program. Uh, in addition, you really want to have very low, low flow time. So that's time where we're doing CPR and we're getting some circulation to the heart and the brain, but it's really not the same as a beating heart. We would like to limit that low flow time to less than 60 minutes. We have very good data that shows after about 70 minutes, survival rates are very low. And so really we have a very narrow therapeutic window or limited amount of time to really get someone supported on ECMO to have the best chance of a good outcome. And so just to be clear, that 70 minutes starts from the second that patient's heart stops, right? So heart stops, that's time zero, and that's bystander CPR, EMS on scene, transport to the hospital, hospital getting ECMO started, all less than 70 minutes. That's absolutely correct. So you have basically about an hour to get that person fully supported on ECMO. And if we're starting the procedure of cannulization, starting the ECMO in the hospital, how soon do you think that the patient needs to arrive from the field to the hospital? That's a great question. 
we look at the studies that have been um, studying eCPR, uh, the Aroka trial and the ARREST trial, they all have very specific targets for on-scene time. Um, and generally, we want that to be, you know, 10 minutes or less. And so we need our EMS colleagues to rapidly identify that this person could be an eCPR candidate um, and to transport them to the hospital as rapidly as they can while performing excellent CPR and resuscitation throughout, which is no small task. In our system, we've accomplished great things with um, quick on-scene times um, in trauma patients, and we um, traditionally have not done that for medical arrests because this is a new technology and really hasn't been available um, to our community, but it is something to definitely explore um, going forward. So why don't we talk about the arrest trial um, that was studied that you were referencing, and can you kind of describe, or Sajin, do you want to talk about the arrest trial and tell us about that? Sure. So the arrest trial was a single-center, pragmatic, open-label, randomized control trial uh, performed by the Minnesota group, led by Dmitry Yiannopoulos. They enrolled patients 18 to 75 years old with a witnessed, shockable, out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. And so that means the initial rhythm was ventricular fibrillation or pulseless ventricular tachycardia without sustained ROSC after three defibrillation attempts. So this is what we mean by refractory. They've tried to defibrillate three times and haven't achieved ROSC. So from August 2019 to June 2020, 30 patients were enrolled and randomized, 15 to each arm, uh, 15 to eCPR, and then 15 to standard of care. And the patients randomized to eCPR were rapidly transported to the nearest ECMO initiation hospital, where they were cannulated and heart catheterization performed prior to transfer to the ECMO Center for further care. So Dr. Rai, you want to talk about the outcomes of the arrest trial and what we learned from it? The primary outcome of the arrest trial was survival to hospital discharge. And eCPR group really did a lot better with 6 out of 15 patients, 43% surviving to hospital discharge versus only one patient in the standard resuscitation group surviving, which was 7%. The eCPR group did so much better, in fact, that the study was stopped early because the study group felt like it was unethical to continue randomizing people to standard of care when they did so much worse. That makes sense, right? So if ECMO is providing such a great success rate, you've got a 43% chance of survival. You definitely want to be put in that arm. So um, in a lot of studies, they do stop things early if they find that there's a significant difference um, in the outcome of care. In addition, it's really important to note that the eCPR group had excellent neurological outcomes with all six surviving patients achieving good functional outcomes with ability to perform activities of daily living at six months. So, you know, I think it's important to note that these extraordinary outcomes with eCPR have not been recreated in every system. And really the system is the key to achieving these excellent outcomes. The Minnesota system, they've been doing this for a long time and is really dialed in. When we look at um, all hospital systems and the extracorporeal life support organization registry, the ELSO registry, we see that survival to hospital discharge after eCPR is more like 28 to 30 percent when we take into account all the different systems that are currently doing eCPR. So let's talk about the system and what the system would have to ideally be if this is going to be achieved. If you're going to start a new ECMO system or a new eCLS system, can you talk about the different components of the system? Yeah, so um, I think the key factors are good patient selection. So, you know, choosing good candidates to use this therapy on. We have to have excellent quality of CPR and resuscitation pre-hospital. 
Um, again, we've talked about the time to ECMO support and how important that is. And the skill of the cannulating team and the experience of the managing ECMO teams really come into play there. Um, and then obviously we have to perform, you know, excellent uh, ECMO care um, and be managed and experienced ECMO center uh, in order for really the best outcomes to be achieved. And when you talk about the cannulation, just for our audience listening, can you describe what's, what is the process of cannulation? Like what actually happens? Sure. Uh, so for eCPR, we're almost always talking about um, doing a femoral femoral cannulation. So we're accessing both the femoral vein and the femoral artery. And then what we do is we place uh, a long guide wire um, that's very stiff through those existing lines. Uh, and then we do a series of dilation steps. And so basically just making the hole that we created and dilating the skin bigger to accommodate the size of the ECMO cannulas. Remember, we're talking about very big arterial and central lines, essentially. Um, but the venous line uh, is generally somewhere around 23 to 25 French. So you can think of that in terms of your chest, your trauma chest tube, which is 36 French. So we're talking about a really big uh, drainage cannula. And then the arterial cannula, we usually dilate up to a size of about between 17 and, and 19 French. And that's in an artery again. So Crystal, for all of us who have not really seen ECMO happen or who are not really a part of that ECMO team, so once you put those cannulas in and you hook them up, like tell us about the box. Tell us about the, the magical system and like what happens in there. So, so after we put the cannulas in, then we have a way to remove the blood and return it at flow rates that are acceptable for support. Basically, the first kind of important part is the pump. Basically, it's a centrifugal pump, but it's basically a magnet that spins around. Um, and then the blood comes in enters the pump head, gets spun around, and leaves faster. And so that's kind of how the the pump works. And um, the ECMO machine kind of moves the blood around from the venous to the arterial side. And then the blood goes through something called a, a membrane lung or an oxygenator, which um, basically is made up of very small tubes of something called polymethylpentene. But it basically just creates a, an interface for the blood and the oxygen that you're putting into the oxygenator um, to interact, but not be directly exposed to one another. If you take blood and just expose it to oxygen, the, all the cells lice and you can't, you know, be supported for very long. You know, early cardiac bypass was like that, but everyone would die after a few hours because um, all your blood cells would lice. And so the membrane provides uh, an interface for gas exchange while protecting the, the blood cells, essentially. And then it just, it warms the blood or it can warm or cool as needed and then just returns it. And that's really all there is. I'm guessing it's electrically powered. It has to be plugged in. It's not super portable. Oh, no, it's um, depending on the system, but the cardio help system is, is very small and easily portable. So you can do this on an ambulance. You can do this in a helicopter. Um, it is electrically powered, but it actually does come with a hand crank also. So if you were to have a power failure, um, and you needed to support the patient without electricity, you could do that. How long can someone be on the machine? Um, there's obviously complications associated with being on ECMO. So we always try to wean patients off as soon as we can. Um, when we're talking about COVID and lung support, the average time has been about two weeks. Um, but granted, we've had patients that have been on ECMO for you know a month or longer. And there's certainly reports in the literature of people being on ECMO for months at a time. 
Can you go through just briefly some of the complications? I know there's a lot of them because you're taking, you know, all this huge arterial flow from one, one leg area and then putting it back in the other leg. So just constant cannulation or having those big lines and you have their own complications. We could just t- a few a few of the big complications for the group to listen to. Sure. So whenever we have someone on ECMO support, um, we're generally anticoagulating them or fully fully thinning the blood because we don't want clots to form in the machine and the oxygenator. Um, and so bleeding is one of the biggest complications. Um, it can be local bleeding at the site of the cannulas. It can be bleeding at other parts of the body. And, and the one that we always worry about that ends up being, you know, really catastrophic is if there's any bleeding inside the head, of course. The other thing is, you know, we, we do often still have clots that happen in the system. And so if both the cannula is on the venous side, it's not that big of a deal. You know, usually the clots build up in the oxygenator. You know, worst case scenario, they end up in the pulmonary circulation and lungs. When you're on VA ECMO, it's it's different because clots can go directly to the arterial circulation and can cause things like strokes and heart attacks. So that's that's a really big deal. Other things with VA ECMO in particular, remember you've got a big cannula in an artery, and so really trying to make sure that that leg gets good perfusion. We'll place another cannula to provide good perfusion to the leg, but, you know, ischemic complications do happen. So um, you might save their life, but they might lose their limb, right? It certainly has happened. We try to avoid it. And I think systems across the country, you know, or across the world have gotten a lot better um, at reducing those kind of complications, but they certainly do happen. Well, it's great technology, and um, you bringing that to the Valley with your team, your ECMO team, is definitely a huge win for the Central Valley. Well, I don't think it's my ECMO team <laughs> specifically. <laughs> well, you joining the ECMO team here at Community Regional and bringing your expertise and helping out that team provide more services to the Valley is greatly appreciated. Thank you. I'm, I'm very fortunate and excited to be a part of the team. All right, Crystal, can you explain a little bit about pre-hospital ECMO teams and their role in the U.S.? The theoretical benefits to pre-hospital eCPR, which I'll define as cannulation done at the scene of the cardiac arrest outside of the hospital setting, is really twofold. So one, there's some potential for harm with rapid transport of these patients to the hospital in that it's really hard to perform excellent CPR Um, and focus on resuscitation while also focusing on getting the patient to the hospital as fast as you can. So there's some theoretical harm to doing that. And in some studies, it's shown that those patients that then get rapidly transported to the hospital and don't get put on eCPR may have worse outcomes than patients that were just resuscitated at the scene. So that's one concern. The other, I think, that is even more important is that we've talked over and over about the time to ECMO support being absolutely critical to achieving good outcomes. And in some places, it's really just impossible to get a patient from their home to the hospital within the 20 to 30 minutes you would need to do to be able to have time to get them onto ECMO um, within the appropriate time frame. And so in busy cities like Paris or London, when there's lots of traffic, you simply can't get patients to the hospital fast enough. And these are places where pre-hospital ECMO systems have really um, blossomed. Uh, you know, additionally, in Europe, the systems have, been, have evolved to have physicians on the ambulances and, and on the helicopters. Um, and so there's a system that's really been developed from the beginning to stay on scene and, and do more advanced interventions there rather than more of our system here, where it's more of a sort of scoop and run and get the patient to the hospital. 
So there was a, a registry study out of Paris um, that showed that the survival for patients cannulated in the pre-hospital setting in their specific system was actually double that of patients cannulated in the hospital. It was 15% survival versus 7% survival. They also found that the patients cannulated pre-hospital had better neurologic outcomes as well. And I think a lot of that is um, just the time to cannulation. In this study, they had a fairly low survival rate overall, and they did have times to cannulation uh, ranging from 70 to 110 minutes, but averaging 90 minutes. And again, we said our goal really was less than 60 minutes if possible, and, and absolutely less than 70 minutes. So I think these studies are important. Um, you know, when you're looking at eCPR studies, uh, it's really important to compare apples to apples as much as possible. Again, we can't compare um, outcomes from eCPR to outcomes from patients that achieve ROSC in the field because it's really different patient population. And we're talking about patients that are refractory to our standard resuscitation. Um, and really, the survival in those groups is extremely low. Um, and in many studies, you know, in the REST trial, it was 7%, only one patient. Uh, in many studies, it's it's far less than 10%. You know, there's very few systems in the United States that are actually actively performing eCPR. Um, the REST trial was really the first big trial showing benefit from eCPR. And so I think this is a direction that systems are moving, but it's really not the standard of care at this point in, in time. I think it will become so, but it's really very specialized systems. And again, the system is really the key to achieving good outcomes. I think factors like patient selection, quality of CPR and resuscitation, time to ECMO support, um, and the skill and experience of the cannulating teams is really much more important than whether the cannulation happens in the hospital or pre-hospital. Um, that being said, you know, in systems where you just can't get the patient to the hospital fast enough, really a pre-hospital system is the only way to make it work. The University of New Mexico was the first system in the United States to successfully perform pre-hospital eCPR very recently. Uh, the Minnesota system, they're actually expanding um, to a mobile ECMO service to be able to provide eCPR to patients that are further, that live further away from the hospital. And so even though they have a, a great system that's functioning well with cannulation in hospital for patients that live you know, within the city area, they want to offer eCPR to patients that live outside the city. And so to do that, they need to do pre-hospital cannulation. So for our listeners right now, just know that we're kind of introducing this topic to show like the up and comings, like what's happening with um, medical resuscitation. There's been no change in local protocol. You know, we're still um, following the protocols and running our medical arrest as such, but I'm sure more to come in the next couple of years as more data happens um, and ECLS becomes kind of the new standard of care in the next five to 10 years, I'm imagining. So Crystal, in Central California, where is our ECMO Center? Who, who is the ECMO team? Our ECMO Center is Community Regional Medical Center, um, and we have been um, involved in taking care of ECMO patients and receiving transfers from other hospitals um, for the purpose of providing ECMO. Prior to COVID, um, what were some of the th reasons that ECMO in a hospital would have been used? Um, again, we have to distinguish between ECMO for just respiratory support and ECMO for cardiac support. Um, for respiratory support, generally we're talking about severe ARDS or acute respiratory distress syndrome. So just the very severe lung inflammation um, that makes it impossible to support someone on a ventilator adequately without damaging their lungs. So ECMO really allows the lungs to rest and heal. And that's primarily where we're using it in covid ECMO is actually also very efficient a way to remove carbon dioxide or waste products from the blood. And so we can use it 
for um, very severe COPD exacerbations or asthma exacerbations. And of course, patients waiting for lung transplant. We're talking about venoarterial ECMO or ECMO for heart and lung support. Then really patients that are, you know, that have suffered a cardiac arrest, um, patients that have severe myocarditis and have, you know, suffered acute heart failure from that. Severely poisoned patients, particularly with cardiac poisons like fleconide or calcium channel blockers, beta blockers, uh, massive PEs as a bridge to support the heart to, you know, thrombolysis or other therapies. Um, and then hypothermia is other kind of really big one. Um, patients that have suffered a cardiac arrest due to profound hypothermia and using ECMO to support the heart and for the purposes of rewarming. Um, can you just hint, Crystal, for us on um, ICU care, like kind of post-ECMO, they're on ECMO, like tell us what happens to them in the ICU or what are some things that you could expect? What sometimes people don't appreciate is it really takes an entire village uh, of people to take care of an ECMO patient. You know, post-cannulation, we really decrease the settings on the ventilator to try and rest the lungs as much as possible. And we do the work with the ECMO machine. Um, but then, you know, after a period of a day or maybe two, we really try to wake the patient up and so that they're um, able to participate in physical therapy. So we have patients that sit up, they stand, they walk on ECMO. They have their bedside nurse. We also have a dedicated ECMO specialist nurse there to watch the circuit at all times. Uh, the perfusionist is there to troubleshoot like any issues we might have with the circuit. And of course, we have their regular ICU doctors and then the ECMO team that rounds on them every single day as well. It's very rewarding. Yeah, I couldn't imagine you have someone who comes in like that debilitated and then to see them like walk out of your hospital is quite amazing, I'm sure. Yeah. I mean, to see somebody stand and walk on ECMO or to be able to go out to the courtyard on ECMO, but then even more so to see them, you know, three or six months later, just walking around normal is the, the most rewarding thing. The reason for doing it, honestly. So let's, for the group, go around and just say our take-home points after today's ECMO ECLS discussion. Let's talk about what do we want them to remember from this talk. Sajan, you want to go first? My take-home point is that the most important part of a cardiac arrest care is chest compressions and good, high-quality CPR. So these witness arrests, uh, we want to get chest compressions as soon as possible, regardless of what their end goal is. Yeah, I, I want to stress that I think the key the key is truly the system from the very beginning. Um, as you said, excellent pre-hospital resuscitation, uh, rapid cannulation and support, um, and then excellent follow-up uh, interventions uh, to support the patient's recovery, and then excellent ECMO care. Every element of that system is absolutely critical to achieving good outcomes with eCPR. And my take-home point is just that EMS care does save lives. And so that care in that first 10 to 20 minutes of really sets their trajectory. So good job, American Ambulance. Good job for all the saves we got last year. And thanks for all that you do. Absolutely. And thanks, Crystal, for being here. Thank you. Happy to be here. If you guys like the American Ambulance EMS podcast and you feel like this has been useful for you, please give us a five-star review on the iTunes store so that we can move up in the ratings so that uh, other uh, pre-hospital professionals can listen to us as well. Um, and we're also taking any solicitations for ideas or, or topics that you want covered, and you can email us anytime at podcast at AmericanAmbulance.com. Once again, that's podcast at AmericanAmbulance.com. Thanks. 
Thank you for joining us on the American Ambulance EMS podcast, produced by American Ambulance in Fresno, California. The views of the guests and the hosts of this show are their own and don't necessarily reflect the views of American Ambulance or UCSF Fresno. The theme song for the show is written and performed by Roshan Roach. The beats were created by Young Pear and Brett Schoenwald. And I'm John Mark Bergen, American Ambulance's media producer, saying thanks for joining us. Have a great shift and stay safe out there.